This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. The Hunt Stand Podcast is brought to you by Matthews Archery, elevating the archery experience. I've been shooting the Phase 4 33 this fall, and that thing has been shooting lights out for me. And so much, I got my first out-of-state buck with the phase four and i got to go to kansas this year drew a tag and got it done on opening day with a beautiful giant velvet a point with my good friend cody butler and we got it done with the phase four and i can't say enough good things about this bow i love the deadly accuracy of the bow the deadly quietness of the bow and the dead vibration in your hand when you shoot this thing so if you're interested in learning more about the phase four 33 as well as the other bows in Matthew's lineup and accessories, head to matthewsinc.com. The Hunt Stand Podcast is also brought to you by Yamaha Outdoors and their proven lineup of ATVs, side-by-sides, and off-road vehicles. The Hunt Stand team has got the Wolverine RMAX 4 1000 XTR at our side this fall, and we are going to be putting this thing to significant use from the Deerwoods all the way up to the Elk Mountains. If you're interested in learning more about Yamaha, head to yamahamotorsports.com slash side-by-side so you can check out that Wolverine RMAX 4100. The podcast is also brought to you by 10 Point Crossbows, the leader in crossbow technology for over 25 years. The Hunt Stand Podcast is also brought to you by Moose Utility Division, your brand for all seasons. And finally, the Hunt Stand Podcast is brought to you by Savage Firearms. Better comes standard. Well, Darren, welcome back to the Hunt Stand Podcast, man. Thank you. Yeah, dude. Glad to glad to catch up. It's been a while since we since we chatted. I know last time we talked was actually public land, but turkeys. And this time, we're talking rut, November deer, public land, and kind of traveling around the nation. Is what you're known for and what you do. I mean, I know you do hunt back home, but you got a lot of out of state tags this year. And so before we guy really get into it, man, just kind of give the audience real quick that quick 30-foot, 30, 30,000-foot 30, tree stand view or, you know, 30,000-foot view of who you are, just down and dirty. Yeah, so um, I've been I've been uh, freelance writing for about, let's see, I guess 2008 was when I got started, mm-hmm. and I've uh, been doing it ever since. Just really, uh, um, really passionate about public land whitetail hunting um just really love it and uh getting to bump ideas off from guys like you heck yeah man it's always fun to talk deer hunting you can't complain about it uh how'd you get into freelance writing is that what you wanted to do like straight out of school or like what'd you want no i actually hated um i hated reading and writing in school uh i was actually homeschooled which is interesting Mm mm-hmm all the way through, um, all the way through high school. And, uh, I, I 
I think where it changed was um, I shot a really tremendous bear with my bow and uh, my grandma actually challenged me to write a story and try and get it published on that uh, on that bear hunt. And at the time I was just kind of really, really blindsided, I guess, by that because uh, mm -hmm. she knew that I, you know, wasn't a big fan of school um, and that it just probably wasn't really something that I was passionate about, obviously, at that point. So uh, I I said, you know, yeah, I'll write, a, I'll write an article on that bear. And in the meantime, she got diagnosed with what's uh, ALS, which is Lou Gehrig's disease. Mm. So um, she started regressing and uh, I, um, I did a, I did an article and submitted it to Bowhunter magazine. And, uh, you know, time went by and I thought it's never going to get published. Um, you know, I'm, I'm brand new at this. I've, I don't have a name for myself, nothing like that. And I think a month went by and I finally got a letter in the mail and, uh, the editor at the time, Dwight Shue, he, uh, um, he, he gave me an assignment based off from that submission. And what's funny is I was just telling someone this story the other day. And back then, you know, it, it's not that long ago, 2008, but back yeah. then I actually submitted that story hard copy. Like it wasn't through email. It wasn't through WeTransfer. Like it was hard copy, snail mail. Dang. Yeah. Um, so he, he gave me an assignment to trim the word countdown and provide a little more detail about uh you know about the equipment that i used and he said if you can do that i'll find a, a spot for it in, in one of the upcoming issues of bowhunter magazine so uh i reworked that article as fast as i could also try to do a really good job with it obviously and be thorough sent it back in once again hard copy no yep. and uh i think it was about a month went by and i hadn't heard anything and i was like oh yeah he changed his mind like it's obviously just too good to be true. And then the next correspondence was a contract saying that I would be paid X amount of dollars for this article and that it would be published in the May, June issue, um, 2009 of Bowhunter magazine. And that's kind of where it all started. After that, um, I submitted more articles to several other magazines. I picked up a column in a, in a magazine, um, inside archery, which is a, a trade magazine that goes yeah. to all the manufacturers and, and archery, um, uh, archery shops, sporting goods stores. Mm -hmm. Um, after that, um, I just started submitting more and more articles and, uh, eventually I was given an opportunity to become the editor of a magazine called Bowhunt America, which, uh, to my knowledge is not published anymore. And, um, I was also the equipment editor for inside archery. So that was like my first my first full-time, um, you know, opportunity to be in this, uh, in this seat, you know, doing the whole writing and editing thing, um, did that for a couple of years. And then after that, uh, decided to venture out on my own and, and go freelance and the Lord has provided all, all along the way. And I've, um, had more than, you know, more than enough to take care of my wife and I, and get to travel the country and hunt, hunt deer and elk and antelope and all sorts of fun things Heck yeah man that's a that's a pretty incredible story uh you know i feel like i get to talk to a lot of people about how they kind of got their start in the industry if you will and it always seems like there's a family member that had a huge huge impact on pretty much everyone uh might be somebody different in different cases but yeah pretty cool story yeah. man yeah and then to to tie a bow on the top of that um that that Bowhunter magazine issue with the bear story got published and uh, my grandma got to got to hold that in her hands. And I don't know if she was, um, you know, if she was aware enough to like read the whole thing. I, I know she obviously um, she she had her wits about her, so she probably mm -hmm. at least read some of it, but she wasn't doing you know too good at that time. Um, I think she passed away probably within a month after that, but it was really cool for her to kind of, um, you know, spark me to try and write a story for one thing, send it into a, a nationally known, you know, bow hunting publication. And then for it to come full circle and for her to actually hold it in her hands was, I mean, it's, I get chills just, you know, talking about it. So oh, heck yeah, man, I got goosebumps right now, but uh, yeah, pretty dang cool. Uh, well, man, let's, uh, let's get into public deer hunting. You know, it's, it's, yeah. it's your bread and butter. It's what you do. It's what you love to do. 
So uh, let's let's talk about it, man. I want to kind of pick your brain because I know there's a lot of guys out there. I mean, myself, I've never done public land deer hunting before. Plan to one day. I'd like to. And I think there's a lot of guys like me that have a lot of questions. There's guys that may have done it once or twice. They either found success or, you know, 90% haven't found that success. So they're really trying to dial in their public land game. So when it comes to public land deer hunting, what is your first approach point? Or like, what's the first thing you begin attacking before you even step foot on that public land? Yeah. So a lot of the planning for me starts, uh, when all the, you know, the application deadlines are because even States that were previously over the counter either have quotas now. Mm -hmm. Um, and when they're sold out, they're sold out, or they have a, you know, an actual formal application system to, you know, to divide up the tags. So that's really where it starts. I, um, I look at any preference points I might have, although that's not super applicable for whitetails as it is for other big game for me. Like I can usually get into places I want to be either every year or every yeah. other year. Um, but that's kind of the, the baseline. And then from there, um, you know, sometimes I go back to places I've been before and, and I like the familiarity and I like how, how I know, you know, something about that specific region. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's also a part of me that loves to explore and be on new ground for the first time. Yeah. And, and not only that, but be, um, you know, pretty regularly successful with stepping on brand new ground. And it's pretty re rewarding to, um, to be able to pick apart a map. So I guess what I, you know, to kind of circle back to your question, uh, what I really like to do is find good habitat. Um, and it, you know, it doesn't always have to be strictly on the public land. Uh, sometimes it's on adjacent private land. There's good, good food. And, you know, um, on one hand, there's people that are paying big bucks to, to grow deer on their, their land. And then they wander off, you know, onto public land and get shot. And that's just, that's just hunting. That's just deer being deer. So nobody owns them. Nobody owns the deer. Um, if you, get them on the public land you 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 won the game fair and square but uh anyway um habitat is big you know you want water of some type whether it's a reservoir or a, a creek or something like that um some cover is a obvious necessity and then like i said food whether it's on the public or whether it's across the fence on on mm -hmm. private land but that's a big thing um i also like to have options because i can't count how many times i've gone on to a piece of public with a very specific spot maybe even almost like a specific tree pinned down on you know on hunt stand uh and then you get there and you know either it doesn't look as good as you thought it it would or somebody else already has a stand there so i love yeah. having backup plans um i also hunt a little bit differently than a lot of people uh you know i've really found my groove with being on the ground and so i hunt areas you know that are sometimes away from the typical creek bottom habitat or, you know, along the food plots, if the game and fish or DNR, you know, happens to plant those on the, on, you know, specific state wildlife areas. Mm -hmm. So I, I, a lot of times will slip around on the ground. Um, I got to say though, that's not for everybody and, and not just anybody should try that because you can blow a lot of deer out. And a lot of people have the mentality when they do that, oh, it's no big deal. Cause it's just public land and I can go somewhere else tomorrow. And it's like, there's a respect thing there. You know, other people are hunting it too, and yeah. you don't want to just blow everything out intentionally. Um, so there's, I think it's about finding your, finding what's in your wheelhouse as far as your skill. You know, again, not everybody can slip around on the ground without spooking deer. And I, I can tell you, I don't spook any more deer than when I used to hunt from tree stands. In fact, maybe, maybe less. Um, so that's what I do. Um, not for everybody, don't suggest it for everybody, yeah. but you know, if you have the skill, it's not a bad option. That's true. Now, when it comes to November, you know, obviously the deer are doing a lot of different things than they were in early season, even in the pre-rut stages. So, you know what, my question for you there is what is kind of your first thought process when it comes to looking at the public land for November for rut strategies? Are you doing all day sits? Uh, you know, what are you looking for specifically when it comes to November? 
Yeah, a lot of it. And I, I learned this from a, a good friend and a fellow um, outdoor writer, Bernie Beringer, that, uh, you know, hunt the terrain. Uh, don't always hunt the deer sign, mm-hmm. um, especially when the rut really gets going. You know, leading up to November 1st, scrape lines and stuff can be really effective. But once those bucks start chasing the does around, you can't count so much on the sign and you got to you got to really, um, you know, home in on the uh, on the terrain features. So I look for that. Uh, you know, obviously, again, food in the area is important because that's yeah. going to attract the does. But then the bucks, where are they going to be chasing those does during daylight? Um, you know, I look for I look for a good habitat, but then I also look for um, obscure thickets and things on the outskirts of that because you know a lot of times the bucks will corral that hot doe somewhere mm-hmm. and and bed down with her for you know uh, 24 hours or whatever it is until she's ready to breed and you know he won't leave her and so sometimes that's the places that you'll find the find the bucks especially when they're in lockdown so I like to have a good mix of habitat if I'm not finding what I want or not seeing you know a, a mature buck where what I would consider typical or classic deer habitat, then I'll start looking to some of the other areas, um, the thickets, the, you know, the tall, like CRP grass, that type of stuff. What are the terrain features that you're looking for specifically? Like, are you looking for saddles? Are you looking for benches, uh, ridge tops, ridge endings? Like what are some specific things you're looking for when it comes to e-scouting to, you know, essentially narrow your focus in on? Yeah, um, a lot of a lot of my hunting ends up being on the plains. So a lot of the funnels and stuff in that type of country are along the the creek bottoms. You'll find like maybe a rock outcropping on one side, and then a like a bench, and then it drops off to a deep creek or something like that. So that bench kind of serves as a nav- uh, natural travel corridor. Um, I think of a buck that I killed in Oklahoma, 150. Um, and two ace or three ace, something like that. He went, uh, came up chasing a doe from a creek bottom, and I had placed this stand. Uh, it was kind of a like a grassy hillside that cut between a deep ditch and then a like an actual cliff. So it's like any deer that would come through there naturally would go, you know, through that grassy path that was beneath those two yeah. big um, terrain features. So that was, you know, that's a good example. Um, and there were some deer beds, you know, in that tall grass. I figured that's definitely a place that a buck would check for does. So um, you just got to kind of be attentive to where deer are coming and going from and then find some type of terrain features. And a lot of times uh, I've hunted areas that looked really good for terrain but didn't have a lot of deer sign. And I have seen, you know, I have seen bucks, I have seen good bucks doing mm-hmm. that. So don't get so hung up on the sign, um, you know, hunt what makes sense. If there's deer in the area, all it takes is one buck to cruise through that terrain feature. And for bow hunting, it's, it's almost, it's almost necessary because you're trying to get that 25, you know, 30 maximum shot if you can, you know, and not stretch the game out too far if if you can help it. And uh, those terrain features kind of help you to dial in and get that easy bow shot. So um, yeah, that's what I would suggest. And then in, uh, you know, in more like um, farm habitat and timber country, rolling timber country, yeah, saddles would be a good one. Uh, ridge tops that are, you know, uh, slopes are steep on both sides. You got maybe oaks or something on the top. Those are good cruising places for bucks. So yeah, just, I think just look for the path of least resistance. I mean, bucks like to like, I mean, not that they won't go up the steep ground, but they, a lot of times will travel those easier paths um, as long as it's not ridden with human activity. Yeah. What about uh, when it comes to bedding? You know, I, I think a lot of people always think that, not a lot of people, but there's some people that think that deer may bed down in bottoms, creek bottoms, which they do. But talk to me about, like, uh, what you're looking for when it comes to bedding areas. You kind of th- talked about that earlier with some thickets and stuff, but um, I've heard people talk about that deer will – sometimes bed just on the top edge of ridges or, you know, how true is that? Or like, what are you looking for, for bedding areas? Yeah, I've learned, 
So a few things to that, obviously in the, you know, the plain states, I'm looking for those thickets a lot of times because, you know, the only, the only thing that's going to disrupt those bucks is pheasant hunters usually, or, or their bird dogs. So um, those are really good places to look at. And I've encountered a number of really good deer in places like that, where it's like pheasant habitat. Um, now in the, in the, you know, where I grew up here in Wisconsin and, uh, you know, to be, to be truthful, I don't hunt here a lot anymore just because mm-hmm. when I'm home, I'm usually, uh, filled to the brim with writing assignments. And so I try to knock those out while I'm here and then go hunt elsewhere and kind of, uh, kind of have my focus where it needs to be based yeah. on where I'm at. Um, so, but anyway, in Wisconsin here, you know, we do have some more topography, um, ridges and things like that. I think, you know, you can predict it to some measure, but I've been surprised so many times about where deer choose to bed. I think it really comes down to um, the wind advantage for them. I think that they know exactly where they need to be to take advantage of the wind to sense any incoming danger and be out of there before said danger even becomes an issue. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I've seen that to be true. And, uh, um, you know, I think again, just, just don't rule anything out. I mean, there's, we'd be surprised how many times there's probably a big buck bedded, you know, within a hundred yards of a residential area, for example. I mean, they just, they choose the areas that they can trust to sense danger before it, you know, before it becomes a, a real threat. You know, it's funny you're talking about the the bedding areas on it. Cause I was talking with uh, Josh Honeycutt recently on a podcast and he had gone up to hunt his place in Ohio and he had a buck that he'd been seen on camera throughout the summer. And I know this isn't specific to public land per se, but uh, he knew a specific ed- a bedding area that this deer was spending its time in throughout the summer. And he knew or thought that this time of year, that deer was for sure going to be bedding somewhere else so his entry to a stand location was going to be clean and really good access. He's like, man, as soon as I hit the tree edge of that buck's old summer bedding area, he said, I looked up and there he was bedded down. Mm-hmm. So you always expect the unexpected with uh, deer, I guess, is the best way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. And then another point, and I've talked with other really um, proven big buck hunters, is that I think that I grew up misconceiving and being taught that once you bump a buck from his bed, like he's gone, he's on a different property for mm-hmm. the rest of the season. And there's, there's guys proving that that's not true all the time. And I oh, think yeah. it comes back to that, that bedding area worked. If they were able to, to bust someone or bust, you know, if it's a coyote, whether it's a human, whatever it is, if they were able to sense that and get out of there safely, they, tr- they can trust that spot. Mm-hmm. It worked. It, their, their entire plan worked. Um, but yeah, there's, there's guys, I haven't done the whole, um, cliche bump and dump strategy that people, you know, that buzzword, but, uh, um, it's definitely a thing. And, um, your, I'd say your season's not necessarily over if you bump a big buck, cause again, his bedding area worked for him and, and he can trust it now and he might be back within a day. Yeah. He's there for a reason, obviously he's there for a reason when it comes to, uh, distance you're getting away from roads you know obviously sometimes you might end up at the trailhead or the parking lot for public land and it's just jam-packed with people uh what's kind of your strategy there i mean if you show up to the lot jam full you turn around going to plan b or c or let's say you've got something that's deep i mean a couple miles in like what are you doing to get away from traffic on public land yeah most of the time uh, if there's any significant number of vehicles, I'll just, I'll just press on because I'm assuming that, uh, what I'm saying is I'll switch gears and go to, to plan B because, um, I have to assume at that point that there's probably multiple skill levels. Some people are probably going to be hundred, you know, maybe not that close, but within a couple of hundred yards, few hundred yards of the parking area. And then there's probably some hardcore guys that are, you know, going way back in deep. So if there's any significant number of vehicles, um, I'm just going to move on to another spot. But uh, typically, 
Um, I've killed, I've killed bucks as close, you know, on public land, as close as 200 yards from, uh, you know, a, a highway. Um, and I've also, you know, shot them at least a mile and a half, if not more deep. So that's usually kind of my goal. If I'm going into a, a new property is to be on my toes as I'm hiking in, don't, you know, don't get too fast footed and go blowing through the deer. Cause during the rut, especially they could be, 50 yards off the road you just don't know so you got to be on your toes but then my goal is always to kind of push push the envelope and get past where most people are going to be um and you know the western states or at least the plain states like the dakotas kansas nebraska oklahoma a lot of hunters think you can see pretty much everything from the road and you're you know you're obviously surprised once you hike a little bit how many Mm -hmm. different little pockets and nooks and crannies there are so um, I think about, uh, my biggest buck ever, um, you know, not huge in terms of the, the deer world. I mean, but a, a very solid deer for a guy who hunts public land almost strictly. So, um, he was just a smidge over 150, 151 and three eighths or something like that. But Dang. that deer, I had spent a ton of time, um, e-scouting, uh, throughout the whole summer, knowing that the trip was coming up and, um, I had this one pocket in mind, or actually there were two different pockets in, in my mind. And I thought, man, there's, this is not habitat where you'd go in and set a tree stand. Cause there's just, it doesn't look like there's any trees, but there's some good cedars and stuff yeah. like that. So I literally hunted it. Like I would mule deer, I would creep up to every single little pocket of trees or little, um, dip in the, in the terrain. And I would knock an arrow and I would peek over as if there was going to be, you know, a buck bedded in, in one of them. Um, and eventually I was going toward the very last one that, uh, you know, that really stood out to me on the map. And as I was getting pretty close to there, uh, this doe comes flying over the hill and it looked like she was almost spooked, you know, her tail was flagging and stuff like that. I thought I didn't spook her because, you know, she was running right at me, um, and then veered off probably a hundred yards from me. She veered off. And then next thing I knew, I saw her tail disappear over a hill about 400 yards away. So it was like, she ran through and was gone just like that. And I was contemplating things for a couple, like, I don't know, maybe less than a minute. And I just instinctively knocked an arrow and knelt down because I'm like, it's November 10th, you know, who knows? Mm -hmm. And it wasn't, a minute later, all of a sudden on the opposite skyline, here comes this, this tremendous buck. And I mean, again, you know, there's so many more higher, higher scoring deer, but this, the body on this thing, I mean, fully, fully mature buck, uh, probably five and a half, six and a half years old, just based on the blocky forehead and the body size. Um, and that deer ended up coming down through, uh, one of those little cuts again, no, no big trees. There's a um, a hedge apple or a Osage orange tree. Um, mm-hmm. that was literally about it in that specific draw. There was a couple cedars here and there, but I ended up killing that deer at 22 yards on the ground. Um, the only reason he knew I was there was cause I mouth grunted to stop him. But, um, just to say that, you know, pick it apart one terrain feature at a time. You know, I definitely spent several hours picking through you know, approaching each little pocket from the downwind side, circling to do that. A lot of times, you know, I didn't walk a straight line. I was very methodically picking apart this terrain and ended up about a mile and a half from the truck where I shot that deer. So don't go blowing in, you know, take your time, pick it apart, have a goal in mind of where you want to go, but don't just, don't just pedal to the metal to get there, you know, keep your, keep on your toes. You know, it's, it's almost like you have to take the same approach that you would, you know, you spoke on it a minute ago about like, uh, how you like to mule deer hunt. Um, I feel like there are a lot of guys that they just blow and go through public land or you see it or you hear about it, but it's just like what you said, you approach it methodically, like you would an elk hunt mule deer hunt with your winds, thermals, all that stuff in mind. That's, that's a really good way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. You have to. Um, it's the details and I'm, I'm not going to claim to be anywhere near the best deer hunter out there, but the more attention I put on the details, the more, you know, good things happen, the more big buck encounters I have. Um, I, I can look back now at, um, you know, when I was in my late teens and early twenties, starting to go on some of these road trip hunts and, and just thinking about how 
different things look right now. Um, I just learned a lot from mistakes that I've made personally. And I think you just have to be attentive to that when something doesn't go right and, you know, things just aren't coming together. You got to really go to the drawing board and say, what am I doing wrong? You know, it doesn't mean that I don't get busted by deer ever, or that, you know, I connect on every single shot that I take, you know, there's definitely a human element to every single hunt. But the more you, you you know, pay attention to the details, that's when that's when good things really start to happen a lot. Let's uh let's take a minute to talk about your upcoming Kansas hunt. I know you said you're going out there mid November. Don't tell us where you're going. Don't don't tell unit or county or anything like that or the specific piece of public. But kind of nope. walk <laughs> us through your approach based on where you're going. You know, do you have any history with it, or is it new ground? Uh, is this more of that prairie land that we're talking about, or is it kind of a little bit more diverse Kansas land that's got some crops? Like, tell us about where you're going. Mm-hmm. Kind of, yeah, it's going to going to be kind of rolling prairie. Mm-hmm. Um, so similar to what I've hunted in the past, but I have no history with it. Um, it's been a place that I've looked at on a map for a long time and thought that I would like to try it. Um, and uh, yeah, just just based on the habitat. And the, you know, the amount of public land there, it's, it's not like there's a lot, but there's a, there's a mixture. Uh, and I suggest that guys do that if, you know, if possible, when you go to some of these states, find like a big um, state parcel or federal, you know, federal chunk of land that's open for public hunting, but then have some saddle, um, satellite options on the outskirts, like walk-ins smaller state areas that might be overlooked, things like that. So that's kind of, that's usually uh, my strategy with a lot of these out-of-state hunts. And that's definitely the case with this Kansas hunt coming up. Are there any crops in this? I know you kind of talked earlier that sometimes wildlife agencies, uh, DNRs and et cetera, will go in and plant crops in certain areas. Uh, Do you have any of that within this or just all natural rolling public land prairie? Yeah, there's, there's definitely some stuff, um, it appears to be, again, I haven't stepped foot, but, uh, according to the hunt stand e-scouting, there's definitely some of those options, um, both on the public as well as there's definitely a lot of it on the outskirts. So I think deer will be coming and going a lot from the public areas. And then just with Kansas, um, you know, if you, if you hunt how I do and you like hunting how I do. Uh, a lot of times I'm not getting up at, you know, two hours before dark and getting out there. I'm a lot of times waiting until right at daylight because during the rut, sometimes, you know, you drive a piece of walk-in might be dead for a whole week. Like it might not have anything going on. And then boom, one morning there stands, you know, a a buck you want to go after. So, um, that's kind of, kind of what I'm going to be doing. In terms of access and getting in, uh, you doing e-bikes or you strictly walk in? Uh, I know you said you've got a pretty solid ground game that you like to approach, but are you putting, you know, a hang on or you taking saddles in with you? What's kind of your approach there? Um, I usually don't carry any of that stuff. If I'm going to be on the ground, I'm going to be on the ground and that's that. Um, it's not to say that being up in a tree would be, wouldn't be advantageous in some instances, Mm -hmm. but uh, a lot of times when I spot a buck, I'm, I'm going to try and kill him right away. I'm not going to say, okay, I can set up on him this afternoon. Uh, So I'm very, very aggressive and have learned how to do that, you know, pretty well. Um, But I usually do carry like in my truck, I'll usually have a tree stand and some sticks just so I have options Yeah, and, and usually a ground blind too. Um, I can't really remember ever setting up a ground blind during the rut, but I carry one cause you never know what circumstances will call for. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I definitely, definitely take a tree stand or two along just in case. And I, you know, certainly have killed some dandy bucks out of tree stands on uh, traveling trips like this. Um, but yeah, a lot of it, a lot of it's on the ground e-bikes, uh, you know, some States don't allow them on the state areas. Mm -hmm. Um, some of the federal lands have different restrictions. So a lot of times, especially during the rut, I'm usually just going in on foot that way I'm hunting. As soon as I step, you know, away from the parking area, I'm, I consider myself, you know, hunting right then and there. And 
you, you kind of have to, otherwise you might, you know, go through stuff and bump deer. Like I said earlier, what about calling? Are you grunting, rattling antlers a lot? Or are you just more visually trying to visually acquire that buck? And like you said, just getting super aggressive with him. Yeah, absolutely. So like the buck I just referenced in Kansas, um, that one I didn't call or anything because I didn't feel I needed to. Mm -hmm. uh, I do believe if I would have had my bow mounted decoy and had grunted at him or snort wheezed, I'm sure it would have like, I'm sure he would, he was just in the frame of mind where he would have come right in. Uh, and I had the wind advantage, but, uh, you know, grunting is a big deal and snort wheezing, I think is even better in some cases. Uh, one time I was in uh, South Dakota and I spotted three bucks go into this cattail slough and I'm thinking, okay, the, the one buck was a shooter and I'm thinking, how can I, you know, how can I go about this? So I waited till they got down into the cattails and settled down couldn't see them at all. Didn't know if they kept going and were a mile away or if they were down in there, but it is a big bedding area. So I figured maybe with the wind picking up that, uh, you know, maybe they hunkered down, down in there. So I got as close as I could to those cattails with my, um, my bow mounted decoy. Uh, and I had literally no other cover other than some maybe knee high grass. So I hunkered down and I started grunting really loudly because of the wind. And I just wanted that to really broadcast down into those cattails. And a few moments went by and then I heard something, which was interesting because, you know, it was really windy out. And I, I look through this oval shape in, in that shoot through decoy and there's a buck making a rub. And it's the buck that, that I wanted to, you know, go in after. Mm -hmm. And he's, you know, he sees my decoy and I had it actually set up as a doe because, you know, I didn't know what what these bucks, what frame of mind they were going to be in. Yeah. So had it set up as a doe, did this grunting and stuff like that. And this buck came with his ears pinned back, but he, he was assuming that the buck was behind me. I was the doe. Okay. And he's assuming that the buck is behind me. So he comes in and he starts circling and he's at 30 yards. And I'm like, I don't need my range finder anymore. So I drew back. And he kept circling with his ears pinned back and I'm in plain sight with this, you know, bow decoy, um, no other cover. I don't even know if I had a face mask on. I mean, it was just like, I had to, I felt like I had to pinch myself. It just didn't feel like it was legitimate. Yeah. Um, he stops at 20 yards, like flat up 20 yards broadside. And I stuck an arrow in his heart and I just, I, I can't tell you how exciting that was. So yeah, definitely, definitely calling is a big part of it for me. I always carry a grunt call. Um, I haven't had quite as much luck with rattling as, a, as I have grunting and snort wheeze, but maybe I just need to try that a little bit yeah. more often. Yeah. Man, hearing you tell that story, kind of, I had a similar situation with mule deer on public land in Arizona. Oh, yeah. Uh, and we were hunting January, so it was their rut, and mm -hmm. we're sitting on a saddle away from traffic, away from... You know, the thing that we found with the public land out there, there's just a lot of people that they just park at the end of trails or they're just parking on the side of roads and they're glassing and they're not right. going in past a mile. So we figured out we're going to go in mile and a half, two miles, and we start seeing a ton of deer and kind of the same situation. We were sitting there and I had a shoot through decoy on the front. And the funny thing about it is actually a cow elk because the guys we were with, um, they mistakenly brought elk decoys instead of their mule deer decoys. So it's all, it's all we had. And we're sitting there and we glassed up a group of does and there was a shooter mule deer buck with them. And the buddy that I was with, he's like, what are you going to do? You're going to sneak around the backside of the saddle. And I'm like, no, I'm putting the shoot through decoy on and I'm going to walk right at them. And it was the same situation. And the mule deer buck that was with these does, I guess he didn't quite put two and two together yet. Like that wasn't a mule deer just yet. And he came to me, but the unfortunate thing was all the does came too. they snuck around the backside of me and they're like, wait a minute, that's not a, what we're thinking it is. And so they took off and took him at 80 yards and I missed him, but yeah, it's your situation. I mean that man, some it's like when the rut kicks off, these deer just get stupid. It's like they throw everything out the back at all their senses and they have one thing on their mind and uh, pretty obvious that that buck with you uh, 
that's what he had on his mind. Yeah, if you can give them a, <clears throat> a visual confirmation that you are what they think you are, your odds go up tremendously. Mm-hmm. Um, then there's times when you can't fool them, and a lot of times it's oh, the yeah. doe. Like in your in your case, the does busted you. That I had that happen in South yeah. Dakota too on about a 160 inch uh, ten pointer. Um, <sighs> tremendous buck. He would have been my biggest ever. So um, I was creeping down. There was absolutely like no cover until I got down into this um, little creek bed. I think it was basically a dry creek bed. It was barely even wet down in there. Mm-hmm. So um, they weren't where I had left them. So I was kind of tiptoeing along with the decoy up in front of me. And then all at once, about 200 yards from where I thought they were, I spotted um, I spotted the doe. And obviously I knew that the buck was bedded somewhere right there. She stood up and was watching me. I had the, mm. the antlers on the, the bow decoy this yeah. time. And she just, um, she just didn't buy it. You know, she stood there and looked and looked and then eventually she took off. And that's the only reason that he did, you know, I don't think he even actually got a look at the decoy. Otherwise maybe he would have come in to, you know, try and attack or something like that. But yeah, they off they went and um the doe was the you know the reason why he made it out on that one. So it's a case by case uh situation. You just never quite know. I mean, they definitely yeah. they definitely let their guard down. Um people say they get stupid and and there's certain circumstances that would definitely leave you to lead you to believe that, you know, they have thrown all caution to the wind. Oh yeah. But um you, you just never know. <laughs> Yeah, man. I mean, it's, uh, I killed a doe last year pre rut and they were starting to get ruddy and we killed her, went and dragged her away out of the trees to grab some photos and do, cause we were filming at the same time. So we were just grabbing some stuff real quick. And I looked up behind the camera guy who is my dad and there's this eight point buck, you know, fairly, probably about a three year old deer five yards behind him smelling where she had laid down and died. So I guess she may have been starting to come into heat or she was starting to uh, get in that phase. And so he was smelling it. And I mean, he walked, I mean, you can go and see it. It's a reel on, on the hunt stand IG page. You can just see, he just walks like five, six yards around us. He didn't care. And I mean, I'm sitting there talking, we're looking at him and, um, he had one thing on his mind and I mean, he just, he basically followed her entire, entire trail back to where she got shot in the area that we were hunting. And it was the weirdest thing I'd ever seen. Yeah. It was crazy. Yeah. That's, that's crazy. Well, man, when it comes to the public land deer hunting in November, do you have any other tips, tactics, strategies for the listeners out there before we end today's episode? I'd say the biggest thing is um, you got to be out there. And I think a lot of times we get hung up, you know, there's definitely tools um, that kind of can tell you when the best times to be out there are. Uh, Huntstand's whitetail forecast, whitetail activity forecast is a great one. And it is, it's definitely accurate um, in the times that I've used it Mm -hmm. since last season. However, I don't think that um, waiting for everything to just for the stars to align basically is, is the right thing. I think that every day can be a good, a good day. Now, if you're limited on stand locations and if anybody watched, you know, the, the reels over the last couple of weeks, I said that, you know, that's easy to burn out stands, you know, before the rut even gets Mm -hmm. here. So I think a lot of it is making calculated, um, taking calculated risks. Like if you think that you can hunt an area without spooking deer even if the conditions don't say it's going to be a great day, just during the rut, you just don't know because it just takes one little thing for a buck to get on his feet. So be out there as much as you can. If you have limited spots, you know, be smart. Um, I've, you know, I've even, I've even shot deer on the, on the totally wrong wind, you know, during the rut. And so you know, you can plan as much as you want, but it's not always conducive to getting your tag filled. Sometimes you just have to be out there. Man, that's, that is so true. And, you know, Dalkey and I talked about that in uh, the Field Note Friday's Hunt Stand Edge series that we did, where you can have all these tools in your pocket um, to help you be 
a better hunter from a macro level, but there are so many little things that you have to do right to make it happen and get set up properly. And uh, it's like you said, at the end of the day, all these tools are great. They're helpful, but you just got to go get out there and get your boots on the ground and go after them. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's a lot of times the, the situations when it doesn't feel like success is even achievable that mm-hmm. suddenly I'm looking at a, a dead buck on the ground. So oh yeah, um, last year in South Dakota was a perfect example. It was actually, to be honest, too windy to be bow hunting. I probably, I probably shouldn't have gone, mm-hmm. um, or at least I should have limited my shots to like 10 or 15 yards. Um, but I, I killed a buck. Um, I actually hit him almost exactly left and right where I wanted to. I did hit a little bit low. Um, I think if I would have been higher, I would have definitely taken out both lungs. But that, but as it was, I was back just far enough that a low shot didn't quite get the lungs. And it did stop just shy of like, um, well, actually like just behind the heart sort of. It was kind of an odd shot. Yeah. So I did, I did have to let him go overnight, which I felt terrible about. Um, but nonetheless, uh, you know, those conditions were horrible. I didn't think I was going to even come close to getting a deer that day. Cause I hate hunting in the wind and, you know, I got it done. Uh, again, I wish my shot would have been perfect, but you know, even, even when it's not windy, you know that, I mean, if you bow hunt long enough, I'm not making excuses or anything like that, but anybody that bow hunts long enough, like you're going to have stuff happen. Oh, yeah. And, um, it's just a lot more difficult than leveling some crosshairs up on the shoulder and, you know, squeezing the trigger. So, mm-hmm. um, that happens, but yeah, gotta be out there to, gotta be out there to fill the tag. So that's kind of the thing I would leave people with. Yeah, man, absolutely. And it's like you said, like being a bow hunter, you can have, you can have things go wrong and, uh, like kind of like you noted on earlier, like I've had situations and I think a good thing to note too, is like, uh, if you go out on that perfect day, you know, it's so-called perfect day, everything's right, and you don't see deer. I feel like some guys and girls get so disappointed. It's just like it's like a shot in the heart, you know? Like you just go line up on that perfect day, perfect win, and the deer doesn't show up. Um, it's like you said, I've, I've gone before not expecting to see anything, wrong conditions. I'm just going out there because I want to be in a stand and uh, just hunt. And like you said, you'll be standing over a dead deer. So Yeah. So I got to ask, what are your plans now that uh, Kansas is out of the way? What do you what do you got going for the rest of the rut? So actually, doing a Colorado rifle elk hunt, uh, second oh, nice. second season over the counter. Uh, we're gonna go get out on public land. We're gonna do a hunt stand original with Jermaine Hodge. Um, he religious hunt stand user, and he's been a world elk calling champion, and uh, he is currently an active U.S. military member in the Army where he uh, coaches the Team USA for or the women's wrestling team, and then he also does stuff for, uh, I think it's called the World Athlete Program, so essentially Team USA women's wrestling, and he's going to be retiring at the end of this year, so um, we're going to go help tell his story, and we're both going to have elk tags in our pockets and see if we can get it done, and then uh, after that, Pretty much Texas, uh, potentially Oklahoma, South Texas later on, and then seeing if I can squeeze in a, a trip to Kentucky. But we'll see what what happens there. So yeah, how about you? Oh. Other other than Kansas, what do you got? Um, I've got uh, I've got a South Dakota tag as well as a um, so that's archery, mm-hmm. uh, state statewide archery, and then um, I got invited on a, a tribal hunt, so I've got a south dakota tribal tag and then kansas and then later on i'm doing a a hunt with um, a few different manufacturers in illinois Uh, that'll be like the first um i think they call it gun nowadays rather than shotgun because straight wall cartridges are allowed so it's i think the the first gun season i'll be there with a, a group of other guys and hunting a property or um, hunting with the outfitter that I hunted with last year. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know, I always go into it with kind of lower expectations because in my first few outfitted hunts that I ever got invited on as a, as a writer, I had really wild expectations and 
you know, outfitters are not invincible and it's yeah. not always an easy hunt. In fact, it's usually not. I've killed way more bucks um, on DIY hunts and that's my preference, but it's always cool to to hang out with some industry people and get to see some new products and test them out and stuff like that. So, yeah. uh, you know, we'll see what happens. Maybe at least I'll get a doe. Um, and if I'm lucky, maybe I'll get a, a monster. Heck yeah. No, that's, uh, I had the same expectation last year was my first side to be on the, the rider or media portion of a media hunt. Like I'd always, I worked for a company previously where we did a lot of the riders events and brought people in. Sure. And, uh, we had a, it was a pretty good operation in South Texas, but I went up to Ohio with those high expectations, like you're talking about and hunted hard for six days. And out of the seven guys that were there, only one killed a buck. Actually, yeah. we only had one deer get killed. So it was, it was tough, but yeah, same situation. It was a gun season, straight wall. Yeah. So it was pretty cool, but, uh, no, man, I uh, appreciate your time today talking deer hunting, public land, November, and uh, hopefully a lot of listeners get something from this podcast and apply it to their game plan and find success like you have. Yeah, yeah, that's that's always the goal. I mean, you know, we all hunt for a lot of different reasons, but uh, at the end of the day, um, I hunt to, to kill a deer. And, you know, I think a lot of people share that. It's satisfying. Uh, there is a little bit of bittersweetness with it because, you know, your tag is filled and you're done, but also there's the yeah. satisfaction of everything came out, you know, as planned. So that's the goal. And hopefully people can realize that if they picked up on any little tidbit from this talk, good. Um, if not, we got to talk some deer hunting and that's, uh, that's never a bad thing. Heck yeah, man. Appreciate your time until next time. Yep. Thanks. Will. All right, y'all, there you go. There's another end to another hunt stand podcast episode. We are in the middle of the rut now, and hopefully you learned a little bit from Mr. Darren McDougal today on some public land hunting tips, whether it's, you know, depending on what time of the rut it is, you know, it's any time November is some of this could apply and even outside of the rut. So if you're headed to public land, you want to make sure that you heed the advice from Mr. Darren McDougal. But y'all, we just want to thank y'all for tuning in to the hunt stand podcast. We greatly appreciate the support. If you haven't yet, rate and review the podcast for us. We really appreciate the support for that. It helps us out. And if you haven't yet, make sure you have the HuntStand app downloaded. We have free, pro, and pro whitetail. So you can unlock all the features of HuntStand upgrade to pro whitetail today, especially if you're heading out to public land. So again, y'all, thanks again for tuning into this week's episode of the HuntStand podcast, and we'll see you on the next one.